We read the Word of God this morning in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. The first part of the chapter contains a genealogy with many names in it, names which I think we all find difficult to pronounce. I'm going to pronounce those names not as they are written, but with the more commonly known pronunciations, I think, among us, the ones we find in the Old Testament. The way they are written here is because of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew names in the original, but I'm going to read them in the more commonly known pronunciations. That will help you also to know who these people were. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasan, and Naasan begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David, the king. And David, the king, begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abijam, and Abijam begat Asa. And Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Jehoram, and Jehoram begat Uzziah. Uzziah begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Ahaz, and Ahaz begat Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josiah, and Josiah begat Jeconiah and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begat Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And now begin the words of the text of the sermon this morning, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, 
saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. We read the word of God that far this morning. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in our Advent series of the last month or two, we saw that in times past, God promised to raise up a Messiah from the seed of the woman, from the seed of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, and through the house of David. We saw from a couple different prophecies that God announced and prophesied through the prophets that he would maintain his promise and that he would raise up onto the cut-down stump of the house of David a branch, a sprout, a lowly, tender plant that would grow up out of his roots, the Messiah, a lowly king to execute righteousness and peace and to bring salvation and a kingdom forever. Throughout the Old Testament, the believing Jews clung to those promises, and for a long time they awaited the fulfillment of those promises. And God was secretly working to preserve the line of David from generation to generation, and from century to century, even when the house of David and the line of David seemed to vanish in the mists of time somewhere in the land of Galilee. God was there, preserving the line of David until it came down to two individuals. But who in the town of Nazareth knew that Joseph the carpenter, this lowly man, was in the line, the royal line, of the great King David. And who in Nazareth knew that his espoused wife Mary was also in that line of David and also traced her lineage back to the youngest son of Jesse? Nevertheless, there they were, Joseph and Mary, espoused to each other, two lowly descendants of King David, about to get married and begin their life together in Nazareth. It's fitting that we conclude our Advent series here in the book of Matthew. I did that deliberately. Because Matthew wrote the first gospel account with the very specific purpose of demonstrating to his fellow Jews 
that Jesus of Nazareth, who had come and lived and died, was the fulfillment of the prophecies of old. That Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. That Jesus is the long-awaited, promised Christ, the great son of David. And so Matthew begins his book. He begins to demonstrate that thesis by giving the genealogy of Jesus. He gives that genealogy that puts Jesus at the, at the end of a line that begins with Abraham and traces through the royal line of David. It comes down ultimately to Jesus and shows that he is the legitimate heir of the throne of David. Then Matthew immediately proceeds to the story of the birth of Jesus in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And he tells this story in our text, as you will see, in order to demonstrate to his fellow Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Now all this was done, Matthew writes, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's consider the text under the theme, The Birth of Jesus, the Prophesied Christ. Notice, first of all, his conception in the Virgin Mary. Secondly, his name of wonderful significance. And then finally, his fulfillment of divine prophecy. In verse 18 of our text, Matthew writes to his fellow Jews, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, and notice, even right there, he is confessing that Jesus is the Christ. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, when Mary, his mother, Matthew says, you all know Mary, you have all heard of Mary, you all know that Mary is the mother of Jesus. When she was espoused to Joseph, and Matthew indicates by that that everybody who was reading knew who Joseph was by this time. They had heard of Joseph, the carpenter, the man who had raised Jesus in Nazareth. Matthew says, this Mary and this Joseph, when they were espoused to each other, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Matthew points the readers back to a time when, Matthew, when Mary and Joseph were espoused to each other, but had not yet come together. When Matthew says that they were espoused to each other, he refers to the practice among the Jews of betrothal or espousal, which is not the same as our modern practice of engagement. Espousal was a legal arrangement, a legally binding relationship in which Joseph and Mary, in the eyes of the state, were already married. They were already husband and wife. And that explains why throughout the text we read 
that Mary was his wife and Joseph was her husband already. But they had not yet come together because according to the customs and laws of those days, after that legal espousal took place, the man, the bridegroom, would then go about getting ready the home for his bride-to-be. And they would not yet come together. They would not yet consummate their marriage in the marriage bed until the husband had made the home ready for his wife. So that's what was going on at this time. They were espoused to each other. They were legally bound to each other for life already, but they had not yet come together in the marriage bed. Joseph was in the process of preparing their home. And when he had prepared the home, then they would come together, live together, and come to consummate their marriage in the marriage bed. But it was at that time that Mary was found with child, we are told in verse 18. Now Matthew does not tell us in this chapter what Luke tells his readers in the first chapter of his gospel. We find that in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign forever over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? What Mary meant was not that she didn't have a husband, or she didn't have even a boyfriend, that she didn't know any man. But what she meant was that she and Joseph had not yet come together. They were espoused. But they had not yet come together. How shall this be? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. All of that happened in Nazareth when she was a spouse to Joseph. Before they had come together, the angel came to her and said, You will conceive. You who are a virgin, as a virgin, will conceive and bear a son. 
And after the angel departed, Luke tells us, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. Did Mary tell Joseph before she went on that journey what the angel had told her? We don't know. The scriptures do not tell us. But we are told that she received this message and she rose up with haste and went south to Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth. She stayed there for three months. And it must have been during those three months that she became pregnant by the power of the Holy Ghost. And then she returned north to Nazareth. And now Matthew tells us that as Mary returns home to Nazareth, and as she comes back to Joseph, and he sees her for the first time after those three months, she was found with child. Can you imagine what must have gone through the mind of Joseph when he saw his beloved, espoused wife, Mary, pregnant before they had come together? Can you imagine how his heart must have shattered and been broken when he saw the woman that he loved pregnant with a child that was not his own child, as he knew well? Joseph assumed and could only assume that Mary, while she was gone, had committed adultery against him with another man and now came back home bearing that man's child. The Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 6, verse 34, that jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. And Solomon writes that to a young man to warn him against the sin of adultery or to warn a woman against that sin of adultery. But when a woman commits adultery against her husband, Solomon says that man will be jealous. And he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Joseph must have felt that natural jealousy at that time when he saw Mary pregnant. But he was not filled with any desire for revenge. There was no thought of vengeance in his mind. Because Matthew tells us that Joseph was a just man. He was a good man. He was a righteous man. He was righteous by faith in the coming Messiah, justified by faith, and by the grace of God, he was a lover of justice, a lover of doing what is just and good and right and fair. And when he saw Mary pregnant with a child that was not his own, he wanted to do the right thing, and yet he also loved that woman. He loved her dearly, and he didn't want to hurt her, He didn't want any harm to come to her. And so he was minded not to make a public example of her, not to bring her to the authorities to be stoned to death for the sin of adultery, but rather to put her away privily, to divorce her for the sin of adultery, but to do so privately. That was in the mind of Joseph as he saw Mary pregnant before his very eyes. But that night, we are told that 
While he thought on these things, verse 20, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. We can imagine Joseph trying to go to sleep that night, tossing and turning as he thought about these things, as he pondered what could have gone wrong and why this happened and what happened, and finally drifting off to sleep, and then a dream. And in that dream, a most extraordinary thing, a dream like he had never had before, there before his dreaming mind, an angel, a magnificent heavenly creature sent from the Lord. Was this the very same angel that appeared to Mary, the angel Gabriel? We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us which angel it was, but it's very likely that it was the same angel Gabriel, the messenger angel the one who was sent to give messages to God's people. But there is the angel appearing before his mind's eye in the dream, and the angel says, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine how that special revelation of God from heaven must have healed his broken heart and filled his heart with profound relief and even greater astonishment. The profound healing balm of relief of knowing that his beloved espoused wife had been faithful to him all that time, that she was still a pure virgin, that she had not betrayed him. She had not committed adultery against him. She was not carrying another man's child. But the even greater astonishment and wonder that must have filled his soul when he hears from God through his angel that the child that she's bearing has been conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. That this child that she is bearing is none other than the long-awaited Messiah. That God had chosen His wife to be the prophesied virgin. That God had chosen Him to be the man, the adoptive father of that child. The wonder and the astonishment that Joseph experienced that night. And by relaying this account to us, Matthew demonstrates beyond the shadow of a doubt the truth of the virgin conception of Jesus. He demonstrates to his Jewish readers and to us that Jesus of Nazareth was not conceived when Joseph and Mary came together But Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. What a shame when people today who claim to believe that the Bible is God's word nevertheless also claim that Mary was not a virgin. Who claim that Jesus was indeed the child of Joseph and Mary when they came together. When Matthew explicitly and plainly teaches us in our text 
But that is not the case. Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, as we confess in our Apostles' Creed every Sunday. The Greek word for virgin in the text, in verse 23, is the Greek word parthenos. And that Greek word would have been known to all Greek readers not to mean just a young maiden, but it referred specifically to a virgin. Behold, beloved, the greatest miracle of all history, the conception of the Messiah in a virgin. The greatness of this miracle and wonder is further highlighted and magnified in the text when we are told the wondrous name that he was given. The angel said to Joseph in the dream, verse 21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Gabriel had said the same thing to Mary earlier when he appeared to her. Luke 1, verse 31, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Mary, call his name Jesus. Joseph, call his name Jesus. That will be his name. That's the name that God has appointed for you to give to him. But how could this be? When Isaiah the prophet had announced hundreds of years before that when this virgin comes and conceives and bears a son, she would call his name Emmanuel. Do the scriptures contradict themselves? Do we have here an inconsistency in the scriptures? That his name should have been Emmanuel, but they called him Jesus. Not at all. In fact, Matthew makes reference to that very prophecy that it was done in fulfillment of that prophecy that his name was called Jesus. He was to be called Jesus in fulfillment of the prophecy that the virgin would call his name Emmanuel. Clearly, then, Matthew is teaching us that there's no contradiction, but perfect harmony between the prophecy and the reality. What the Lord is teaching us in our text is that Mary and Joseph must call his name Jesus because in that way, they would also be calling his name Emmanuel. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have to consider the meaning of both of those names to see how that can be. First of all, the name Emmanuel or Emmanuel. Both of those are the same name, and they come from the Hebrew that means, as Matthew tells us, God with us. That's the meaning of that name. Now we have to go back to the original prophecy. God had revealed to Isaiah... In the days of King Ahaz, those dark and troubling days in the kingdom of Judah, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Because in those days, the people of God felt that God was not with them. 
they felt that God must certainly be against them because of the wicked king who sat on the throne, because of the wickedness of the people, because of the great powerful empires that threatened to crush them, they felt that God was not with them. So the prophet said, the Messiah will be given the name Emmanuel, God with us, as a comfort to them. God is with you, and God will always be with you. But it was not just to be a comfort to the people of God in the days of Isaiah, but in all ages of history. God was promising through Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, He will be none other than God with us. God was promising through Isaiah that He would come down from heaven to be with us, to be among us, to become one of us, to become closer to us and more intimately related to us than ever before or could ever be done except in this way. God's eternally determined way was that he would become a man. God was prophesying that through Isaiah. Call his name Emmanuel, God with us, because God is going to become flesh. God is going to take on flesh and blood. He's going to take on the human nature. He's going to, going to be conceived. He's going to become a child in the womb of a woman and be born into this world and live and walk among us. Isaiah was prophesying nothing less than the incarnation of God. That is the greatest miracle of all history. That's the greatness of the miracle, not merely that a virgin would conceive and bear a child who is a mere human, but that a virgin would conceive and bear a child who is God. God was promising his people through Isaiah that he was going to become one of us. Not so that he would rise up as a dark human lord to destroy the wicked people, but he would become one of us in his love for us. He would become one of us so that he can be close to us, so that he can walk with us and talk with us, that he can have an intimate relationship with us, so that he can have a sweet covenant relationship of fellowship and friendship with us in the closest possible way. And that that relationship would last for all eternity. We have here the eternal, infinite God promising to come down into history putting himself inside of the box of time and space and confining himself to a finite human body of flesh and blood and bones and soul to have fellowship with us forever. That's the meaning of the name Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what it is for us to depart from this life and to go into heaven. Paul says it is to be with Christ. 
And to be with Christ is to be with God. God became man so that we might fellowship with God. And when we get to heaven, that will be the joy of heaven. Not just that we are without sin, not just that that we are without death and that we are without pain, but that we are with God. That we see God in the face of Christ and commune with him for all eternity. That's the name Emmanuel. He shall be called Emmanuel because he will be God who will come down into human flesh to be with us, to dwell with us forever. But God will come down into human flesh to save us from our sins, and that's why his name must be called Jesus. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. And when you call his name Jesus, then you will be calling him Emmanuel in the fullest sense of the word. God would be with us. Why? To dwell with us? Yes. But how? By saving us from our sins. And therefore his name must be Jesus. The name Jesus is a Greek name that means Jehovah salvation. Jehovah saves. And the angel told Joseph in the dream, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah, the one true God, will come down into human flesh to save his people from their sins. So call his name Jesus. This is the gospel. The gospel of salvation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am a sinner. I'm a man of sin. I'm a man who has sinned against God all my life. From the moment that I was conceived in my mother's womb and born and brought forth as a little child, I sinned against him. And as I grew up in my parents' home, I sinned against them and sinned against God. And I piled up sin upon sin upon sin, year after year after year. When I became a young man, I sinned against him in new ways, in other ways. I broke his commandments. I missed the mark of his glory. I selfishly went after my own desires and lusts. I did what I wanted to do. I did what I thought was fun, what I thought was good. Of all sinners, I am chief. I've sinned against God with my eyes, with my ears, with my hands, and with my feet. I've sinned against God with my heart, with my mind and soul, and my thoughts, and in my desires. What am I to do with all these sins? What am I to think of all these sins which are sufficient to damn me to hell for all eternity? What am I to do with all these sins which make me guilty before the face of a holy and righteous God for which I deserve to perish 
the angel told Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, the little one, who is growing in the womb of your virgin wife. Call his name Jesus when he is born, because he will save his people from their sins. God will come down from heaven to do what you can't do, you sinner. You can't do it, sinner. You can't save yourself. You can't bear the wrath and the anger and the judgment of God against you for your sins. You'll be crushed under the weight of his wrath, under the burden of your guilt. For all eternity, you'll suffer. You'll suffer in hell. You can't bear those sins. You can't save yourself from your sins. God has come down from heaven to do what you couldn't do. God has come down from heaven and become a man. He's taken on your flesh and your blood, your human nature. He was conceived and born. He lived. He suffered and died. Because only God can bear up under the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. Only God can do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. Even for a single sin that you've committed, a single sin, you can't bear the burden of the wrath of God for that single sin. That's why God became man to save his people from their sins and the curse due to us, the judgment due to us, the condemnation that we deserve. He stepped into the world. He stepped into our place. He stepped into our human nature. And he took upon himself the full burden of all of your sins and all of my sins. And he bore that burden throughout his life, but especially at the end of his life. And suffered on the cross. And was forsaken of God and entered into the deepest, darkest depths of eternal damnation until it was finished. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Don't call his name Jesus because he will simply make salvation available. Don't call his name Jesus because he will come into the world to make salvation a possibility for everyone and anyone. That's not what he came into the world to do. He didn't come into the world to save every single person from their sins. He didn't come into the world to make salvation available for every single person. Because an available salvation is no salvation. He came to save his people from their sins, not just the Jewish people, but all those predestinated from before the foundation of the world and given to this child out of all the nations of the world. He came to save them, us, the elect, from our sins. Through his death on the cross and 
and by giving us the gift of faith so that by faith in him we might receive his righteousness and eternal life. Don't try to save yourself. Don't put upon yourself the burden of trying to do something to save yourself from your sins. You can't. There's not a single work that we can do or must do that can save us from our sins. Not the work of faith, not the work of repentance, not the work of obedience, not the work of love. There's nothing we can do. God came into the world. God was conceived. God became a man. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, to save us from our sins, to save us. That's the message of Scripture, the message of all Scripture. God came to save us. God saves. And God saves by means of faith. So believe in the child. Embrace the child. Cling to him. Don't despise the child. Don't despise the little one of Bethlehem. Don't think to yourself, but what is he? What is he? Just a a little sprout. Just a lowly nothing. Just a carpenter's son. Just a prophet. Just a a do-gooder. Don't despise the Messiah. Cling to him. He is your God and your salvation. Believe in him. Trust in him. He is your Emmanuel. How glorious then is our God in fulfilling his word, fulfilling his prophecy. The book of Matthew was written as an apologetic as a defense of Christianity to the Jews. The Jews knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies. They were looking for a Messiah, the branch of righteousness. But they rejected him when he came and crucified him. Matthew writes this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an apologetic, reaching out to his fellow Jews to demonstrate to them through biblical arguments that Jesus is the one who we've been waiting for. You're wrong to reject him. You're wrong to crucify him. Jesus is the one. There is no other. If you reject him, you reject the one and only Messiah that will ever come, 
the one and only Christ and Savior. There will be no other. All this was done, Matthew says in verse 22, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, in our Advent series, we looked at some of the prophets. We looked at what Moses prophesied, that Abraham and Sarah would have a seed, a child of wonder, through whom God would establish his covenant with us. We looked at the promise of God to David through Nathan the prophet, that God will establish his kingdom and set up his son upon the throne forever after him. We looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah, whom God raised up to announce to his people that God will be faithful to those promises. Even when all seems to be lost, even when all looks darkness and gloominess, God will cause a branch to sprout. In the lowly house of David. But Matthew directs our attention to the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14. When Isaiah prophesied to Ahaz the king, but really to the people of God in those days, this shall be a sign unto you. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. and Call his name Emmanuel. God fulfilled that prophecy when he caused this child to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And Joseph, finding her with child, receiving the revelation from heaven, being raised from sleep that night or the next morning, verse 24, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. All of that was God fulfilling his promise. What a glorious comfort that gives to us today. God is faithful and true. God doesn't make promises and then break them. God doesn't announce things and then fail to do it. When God says he will do something, he does it. He has done it. And above all, he has done it when he sent his only begotten son into the world to be the Messiah. God is mighty to save. He is the Almighty God. He is able to keep His word. He is able to fulfill His prophecies. That's what He demonstrates to us in our text. That's what He demonstrates in the whole of the New Testament Scriptures. God announces to us who He is, what He is. I am faithful. I am gracious. I am true. I am mighty to save. Don't for a moment doubt that, my people. So God wants to assure us as his people today that he will keep all of his promises to us. He will be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us because of the cross 
because of the one who was forsaken on the cross. He will never condemn us because of the one who was condemned on the cross. He will never curse us because of the one who died on the accursed cross. He will dwell with us as our God for all eternity. For all eternity. And after we finish our life here on this earth, whether that is sooner or later, when this child, who is now King of Kings, says to us, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He will keep that promise. And he will bring us through the river of death into his presence to live with him forever. So let us be glad and let us rejoice in all of our trials and all of our afflictions and all of our burdens. This is the good news. This is the glad tidings. Christ Jesus has come into the world to save us sinners. And he has accomplished that salvation. And he will finish what he has started. So lift up the hands that hang down. Lift up your droopy heads. Do not be afraid. Do not despair. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. All is well. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, we thank thee for the gospel that has been preached to us concerning the birth of our Savior. We have heard the old story, some of us, many, many times. We love it. We thank thee for it. We pray that this story of what thou hast done so wonderfully in time and history might be a great comfort to us today. And may we be filled with the joy of our salvation, the joy of forgiveness, the joy and hope of the everlasting life to come. And may we put all our faith and hope 